Welcome to lesson four on how to study the Bible. And this one is called hermeneutics, the interpreting of the Bible. This is so critical. There's a lot of jokes in the church today about so much false doctrine going around. And uh, I even saw one meme of a, of a famous heretic. And uh, on the top of the, the meme, it, it said, Herman Nudics. I don't believe I know him. Does he go to my church? <laughs> and the joke among the Bible, the Bible literate is that guy's a heretic because he doesn't understand hermeneutics. He thinks he's a church member and not a technique for studying the Bible and building doctrine. This is so critical because this is what will keep us straight. This is what will keep us safe and sound. Uh, if you understand the, the art or that really it's the science of hermeneutics, you will always have much more sound doctrine. And this is a little bit more heavy of a subject this morning. And this is literally a subject you can get a PhD in. So we're not going to do it justice in 45 minutes. But if you'll grasp what we say, you will have a much better understanding of the Bible as you study it. You'll have a much better discerner when you hear other people preach. And you can say, you know what, I don't. I know about five verses that contradict that. That violates the science of hermeneutics. You can't build a doctrine on that when there's five verses that say just the opposite. And so this will help us as Christians to be more rooted and grounded in the word. But again, this, this is going to require more than just reading your Bible. Hermeneutics requires interpretation and Bible study. And so, uh, I don't know, I guess we'll commence here. Hermeneutics is the theory or science of text interpretation and in our case, the interpretation of biblical texts. Hermeneutics can apply to philosophical texts, texts of antiquities. And so one of the things we understand is that we, we would probably more accurately call this biblical hermeneutics. And so it is the art or science or theory of interpretation. It comes from the Greek word hermeneuo, which means to translate or interpret, which has its derivations from uh, Hermes, the Greek god or the Greek messenger god. And he could translate things. If you know anything about Greek mythology, Hermes, he's the guy with the little uh, wings on his feet. The FTD florist is Hermes because he delivers a message of love. And he has a cute little hat that I think looks like a World War I trench hat. But that's Hermes for you. Uh, that's all the same derivation. Interpretation, bringing forth the message. The term is often used in our circles and in Christendom uh, synonymously with exegesis or biblical exegesis. So when you talk about hermeneutics or you hear the term exegesis or exegetical um, evaluation, you're also talking in the same realm of hermeneutics, interpreting, expounding upon something. This is critical for us as Bible students. As, a, as the pastor of this church, I'm not just interested in pastoring you and getting you through life's muddy walks. I want you to stand on your own two feet and I want you to understand the Bible for yourself. I, I don't want to always be the mama bird in your life that you just come Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and you open up and you blindly swallow whatever I feed you. That's great when you're a baby Christian. That's great when you don't know, like Pastor Vaughn would say, Job from Job. <laughs> That's great when you don't know what Leviticus is. That's great, but at some point, you've got to begin to study the Bible for yourself. And if you're going to go to my church, you will always feel a pressure to study the Bible for yourself, to be in the Word. And I hope you feel a little backslid when you haven't opened your Bible in a week or two. I hope you feel the pressure, because it's a good pressure. It's a biblical pressure. It's called conviction. So 
Exegesis, here's the difference between exegesis and hermeneutics, though they are used synonymously. Exegesis is limited to a critical interpretation or explanation of texts, so written things, whereas hermeneutics includes the interpretation of all forms of communication, written, oral, even the, the interpretation of body language. That, that's included in hermeneutics. But again, we cover the subject of biblical hermeneutics. There are Talmudic uh, hermeneutics, that is the uh, interpretation of the Talmud. There, there's all sorts of philosophical, Plato uh, hermeneutics and Socrates hermeneutics. We focus primarily, strictly, I should say, on biblical hermeneutics. How do we interpret the Bible? How does Job reconcile with Matthew? How do we put verses from both of those together and build doctrine? What do we exclude if we're going to build doctrine? All right, so that's just kind of a rough introduction to this subject of hermeneutics. And as, as a Christian, I want you, as one of my sheep, I want you to be educated on this thing. Uh, Proverbs says, set your heart on knowledge, set your heart on understanding, set your heart on instruction. Uh, homiletics is a whole other different field of study. Homiletics is the art of preaching or speaking. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. So they sound kind of the same, especially when you're uh, uninitiated in the knowledge of these things, hermeneutics and homiletics. If you go to theolo theological seminary, you'll have to be skilled in both of them. There are five major analyses that can be used in biblical hermeneutics, and that's what we'll spend a bulk of the time with on this lesson. Five major techniques, five major analysis tools in hermeneutics, and these things... Uh, interestingly enough, if you're led by the Spirit of God as a Bible student, you'll automatically be doing these, which is so neat that the Spirit of God leads you in line with something that falls out as science. But that would only make sense because God is the author and creator of all things science. Now, scientists aren't always God-given, and scientists don't always know God, but scientists endeavor to study God's creation, and the study of God's creation is commonly called science. And so it's just neat that when you're led by the Holy Spirit of God and you study his word, the end result in you being led in his studies is also called the science of interpretation. There's only five ways to interpret the Bible, five techniques. We're going to cover those. So if you master them, you should have pretty sound doctrine. Now, the other key is this. There's no such thing as perfect doctrine because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, we only know in part. The best you can ever know is a part. Now, maybe you got a big part or maybe you got a little part, but in the end, all you'll ever know is a part. So we have to always be opened in the Bible, not to paganism or the world's wisdom, but always open to having more scriptures produced to our understanding that tweak our doctrine. And it's perfectly acceptable for a Christian to change doctrine as they mature in Christ, so long as the doctrine is found within the confines of the scripture. One of my favorite quotes is from a man who pastored the same church going on 60 years now, if he's still alive. He said, I spent 10 years convincing myself from the scriptures I could in no ways lose my salvation. That would be a hermeneutical study. He said, then I spent the next 10 years from the scriptures proving to myself I could lose my salvation. Well, he changed his doctrine, but within the constraints of the Bible. Because if you know the Bible well enough, you can see evidence for both. So where's the truth? Somewhere down the middle. <laughs> Amen. All right. Our first major analyses, and there's minor, but these are the five major, 
is what is called a lexical syntactical analysis. That's a smart, fancy pants word, but when we explain it, you, you won't be overwhelmed. Lexical syntactical analysis. This just simply means the interpretation that looks at the words that are used, that's lexical or the lexicon. Looking at the words that are used, this is how you interpret a sentence. If you were to interpret the sentence, see, spot, run, you look at each of the words. What does that sentence try to tell me? The first word is see. What does see mean? To observe, look, watch, behold. What am I looking at? Spot, all right? What does spot refer to? Well, it refers to either a person, a car, or an animal. Probably an animal. All right, so we're halfway, we're two-thirds of the way interpreting the sentence. What's the last thing? What am I observing? Is it him sitting, him walking, him sleeping? Tim running. That would be a lexical analysis. Pretty simple when you look at it that way. So when you do a syntactical analysis, you're just simply observing the words that are being used. And we do that when we read, right? So don't let that fancy pants word overwhelm you. Looking at the words used in the verse and how they are used, that's the syntax. So syntactical is the adjective form of syntax. And so uh, uh, the noun. So a syntactical analysis says, all right, how is the word used? This can be an advanced technique usually left to the Bible linguist, especially syntactical. I have probably never ever had the understanding or the knowledge of how to do a syntactical analysis. The verb placement in, in a Greek sentence means nothing to me. The aortist tense of a word means nothing to me. The nominal gender neutral, uh, whatever in the Greek, it means nothing to me. That's all syntactical. <laughs> but there are theologians and scholars that look at this and bring out further interpretation that we might not have. But this stuff's all been studied out for 2,000 years. And, and the volumes and realm, realm, reams of information on it, libraries can't contain. So Google exists. <laughs> A bulk of what you and I are going to do is just going to be simple lexical. What, what, does this all, what does this word mean? What does this word mean? Who is this person? Is that the same Levi as this Levi? Is that the same Abimelech as this Abimelech? That's a simple lexical analysis. Amen. A more simple uh, study can be done with a lexicon to determine the full definition of a particular word. So let me alleviate half the pressure of this analysis. Nobody in here is probably ever and the rest of their life going to do a syntactical analysis. I don't think I'll ever do one. If I do one, it might be one or two. Not anytime soon because it would have to open up a whole new realm of education for my life that I can't see in the near foreseeable future. But that's what some of the scholars do in their interpretation. But what every one of us should be doing every time we open the Bible is a simple lexical or lexicon analysis. What is this word? What does this word mean? In fact, in my, almost every time I preach, I'm bringing out a Greek word and saying, this is the Greek word, this, and this is what it means. That's a simple lexicon or lexical analysis, and it helps us to better understand, all right? So let me give you some examples just to further drive home the point, and we'll move on to the next analysis type. Uh, this could include a Greek word study on the words for love. So you study the New Testament, and you see all these different words for love. Well, what is that word, love? Well, we know there's four, I've only listed three here, but there's four types of Greek love, agape, philos, and eros. Eros being the erotic love, philos being the Philadelphia brotherly love, and agape being the God kind of love. 
So looking at verses that use agape is going to be a totally different kind of interpretation than looking at the words that use philos or eros. And one of the most common studies is when you study the New Testament, you will find nowhere in the New Testament is the wife ever commanded to love her husband with agape. That brings out a whole new interpretation on marriage. The husband is commanded to love his wife with the agape of God, the God kind of love, because we are representative of Jesus Christ, loving the church with the unconditional God kind of love. So the interpretation you bring forth from that is that women are designed to respond to their husband, demonstrating the unconditional agape God kind of love. Now, women as Christians are commanded to love with the God kind of love, but in the marriage context, there's no verse in the New Testament in any of the epistles that commands the wife to love her husband with the agape of God, though she can, but there's not the command. And so the heaviness of it is put on the husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It doesn't say wives love your husband as Christ loved the church because he's trying to demonstrate a, a biblical law that is responsible for the husband alone. Husbands lead the house as Christ leads the church. And therefore we lead with the agape of God. So we don't have time to get into other stuff, but you can see in studying love, you would do a lexicon study, a lexical, agape, philos, the brotherly love, and then the eros. We're commanded to love each other with the Philadelphia brotherly love, but we're also commanded to love each other with the agape, and they have different facets and different applications. Another word study would be on the Greek words for judge or judgment. There's several there. I'm very versed on these uh, personally because of my studies. Crino, diacrino, catacrino, anacrino, crisis, etc., and so if you wanted to study judgment, which is, uh, that's anathema these days, the church doesn't want to talk about judgment because we're more disciples of the world system in America, the Babylon system, than we are the kingdom of God. But if you were to really study it, you'd see how many hundreds of verses talk about judgment. Which one of these words are we commanded as Christians to do? Which one of these words are we not commanded to do? And what's the difference? That would be a good lexical study and it would help give you an interpretation. What about a word study on the triune nature of man, which would include pneuma, suke, and sarks, or spirit, soul, and body? We might even throw in there cardia for the heart. And then on top of that, you could double up and you could do a study on sarks versus soma. What's the difference between the sin nature and the flesh? Sarks versus soma, soma being flesh, sarks being sin nature. All sarks is sin nature, but not all soma is sin nature. Even Paul said, you know, you eat flesh, but you also have flesh, and in your flesh is a sin nature. So these are just examples of lexical studies. So any good student is going to use their tools that we looked at in the last lesson to do a lexical study, to understand things, to understand where, where things are coming from, where things are going, what the Bible's saying. If you could understand the Holy Spirit is not like you or I, we search for words, even, I do a lot of writing, so even now I go back and read things like, that's not the word I want to use, delete, 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 delete. Let me pull out the thesaurus, see what synonyms. Mm, still not looking, that's not the word I want to use. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what word he wants to use because in him is all the wisdom that there ever is. So when he speaks these words in the Hebrew and the Greek, it's exactly what he meant. I'm just thinking of another study in the Old Testament. I did a big study on terebinth trees, 
which are translated oak trees. But terebinth is also translated plains, like the plains of Mamre. And God met Moses or Abraham at the plains of Mamre. Mamre being a location, the plains. Well, no, no, the Greek word, the Hebrew word is terebinth tree. I like the interpretation better. It was another tree because you have what theology calls trees of theophany, trees where God Almighty manifests himself. Deborah had a tree of theophany. Gideon had a tree of theophany. The Holy Cross of Calvary is a tree of theophany. So you start looking at terebinth and the Greek word for that. Why would they translate it the plains of Mamre? That doesn't make any sense. So then you start questioning the original translators because maybe I know something they didn't because they're just translating, but I've done an in-depth research on terebinth trees. God's always appearing at trees. Why would he say it appears on an open plain? That doesn't give a general location. But a tree in Mamre, that gives a specific location. And God's always about specificity. 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 <laughs> All right, let's move on here. Your second major type of Bible study or a hermeneutical tool is called a contextual analysis. And honestly, as we go through these, all these are going to make perfect sense to you. They just have fancy, educated terms. Contextual analysis is basically you must evaluate a verse in its context to fully interpret, uh, interpret its intention. Not interpretate, but interpret its intention. This method will study everything before and after the verse in question and even look at the overall theme of the chapter and maybe even the whole book. Because if you know the overall theme of Job, the overall theme of Psalms, the overall theme of James, how does the theme of James differ from the theme of Galatians, you can get a more precise understanding about what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate. I shouldn't say try, what the Holy Spirit is communicating through Paul. If all of James is talking about behavior in this infant church, because the book of James is written in about 45 AD, or roughly just 10 or 12 years after Christ's ascension, it's the youngest of all the epistles, you can understand they're still hashing things out. He's talking to a baby church. He's not going to have, you're not going to all of a sudden go off this weird tangent and start talking about something that doesn't line up with the rest of the theme. So why would you even try to extrapolate that out of three verses? It doesn't make any sense. Taking a scripture out of context, as we all know as Bible students, can be very, very dangerous. And for example, what you must do, do quickly. I see that, Pastor. Um, I'm really wanting to go fornicate. And the Bible says what you must do, do quickly. Well, no, this in context was the Lord looking at Judas at the Last Supper. After he prophesied, one of you is the devil. And 11 said, is it I? Is it I? Not me, Lord. And then he looked at Judas and said, what you must do, do quickly. That's the context. That makes it much easier to interpret. <laughs> you don't ever want to hear the Lord tell you what you must do, do quickly, because it means you're hell-bent on betraying the Lord. Christians do fulfill that verse all the time. You can't help them, you can't stop them, and you can almost hear the Spirit of the Lord look at them and say, what you must do, do quickly, so we can hurry up and move on. Rather than sit here and let this thing stay in your heart, and affect everybody around you. If you're going to rebel, do it quickly and God have mercy on your soul once you come out the other side. Amen. Did you know that not even Jesus Christ could save Judas? And you and I have to understand as Christians, we can't save everybody. We preach the word. It's not our job to save anybody. We preach the word and whosoever will obeys and whosoever won't perishes. Hopefully they make heaven, but their life will fall apart. All right, so let's look at some examples. Contextual analysis, we all understand this. You hear this argument all the time. 
critical, the, uh, contextual analysis is critical for short passages like, and Jesus wept. Oh, poor Jesus needed a hug. Now, what's the context? Lazarus' death. So he was crying because his friend died? Not the context. The context was his disciples said, if you had only come quicker, Lord, he would not have perished. And Jesus wept. Not for Lazarus. He said 20 verses earlier, Lazarus sleeps. He wasn't crying then. He knew he was sent to raise him from the dead. So the interpretation is he wept not at Lazarus' death, but his disciples' unbelief and doubt. And holy Lord Jesus, I've been with you this long and you still don't get it. So that's the correct interpretation. What about uh, remember Lot's wife? What about her? What am I to remember about Lot's wife? Is she turned into a pillar of salt? What about her? Well, if you look at the context in Luke, you can understand the whole point is, the whole interpretation of remember Lot's wife is, don't turn back and go where you came from because it'll make you useless to God. I, the best message I ever heard preached on Lot's wife was by an Episcopal priest in the fall of 1995. And his interpretation, and I love it, was that when Lot's wife looked back, it wasn't like Sodom and Gomorrah burning was like Medusa's head in mythology. And if you looked at her, you turned to stone. His interpretation, and it fits with the context of the passages, she looked back and remembered her high school reunion, the place she vacationed, their first home, the place her kids played growing up, her family that's still back there. She longed to go back. And that's what rendered her useless to God. And so when the Lord Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, he says, remember when you try to follow me and you all of a sudden start missing what I'm destroying, you will be useless to me. And she in a waste howling wilderness. And, and why else would Jesus say that? Go and do likewise. What's the context of that? What did, what did Jesus mean when he said, go and do likewise? How about critical for building accurate doctrine? Uh, so you got to look at the context if you're going to build critical doctrine. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. That's a great verse. And that's probably one we have permission to take out of context. But in context, it has to do with money. In context, it has to do with being content without anything. With, in context, it has to do with being hungry when you've got everything. And Paul's famous passage in Philippians 4 about being abased and abounding and having nothing and having everything, he followed it up by saying, I can do all of this through Christ who strengthens me. I remember seeing in the Olympics 10 or 15 years ago, I was watching the, the diving and the little girl gets out of the pool and she's won the gold medal and she's giving the interview and she said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it was a great testimony on national television and, and it was awesome, but the context is money not getting a gold medal in Olympic high diving. Thank God she got the gold medal. Thank God we won the Olympics that year because we always do because we're God blessing America. But the context is money. And so, you know, I'm not gonna fault her for it. Bless God, she's quoting scripture and, and hopefully she still walks with God today. But the context is finances and contentment. What about, uh, but if he, the thief be found, he shall restore sevenfold. I bring this one up because this is a bad charismatic doctrine that, oh, you get a hold of the devil, he's got to repay everything he took from you, sevenfold. The context in Proverbs, if you look at the verse before, is nobody will fault a man if he steals when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he will repay your bread sevenfold or your clothing or whatever. How in the world do you get the devil out of that? And why in the world would you want the devil to go into his treasury of stuff he took from you because it's gonna smell like hell? You know, it's like if you give something to a smoker, you don't want it back. 
I do a lot of eBaying from time to time. And one of the things I always put, non-smoking home. Because the last thing you want to do is buy something on eBay and you bring it into your house. And though it's been in the mail for two or three weeks and been in a plastic bag and your house smells clean, you open that bag and instantly your whole house smells like an ashtray in five minutes. How does that work? So why in the world would you build a crazy, crazy-matic doctrine that says, you catch the devil, he got to repay sevenfold. That is so goofy. Just go back to your father in heaven and say, Lord, can I have some more joy? Because if the devil got my joy, I don't want it back. I mean, it's ridiculous. All right. And look at our last example. These are just examples. And bringeth forth some a hundredfold. See that hundredfold return, hundredfold blessing, hundredfold return. All right, what's the context? The context is Mark 4, Matthew 13, Luke 8, the sower sows the word. So when the word is sown and you're a good ground, you can produce 100-fold return on the word. There's only one person in the whole Bible that sowed natural things and reaped natural things in his, the same year, and that was Isaac in a time of famine. But just because you have Isaac reaping a 100-fold return on crops doesn't mean you have a financial 100-fold return doctrine. Now, sure, you can make the argument, why not believe big? All right, well, if we're going to believe big, believe for a 1,000-fold return. Why does it got to be limited to a hundredfold? Believe a billionfold return. But you see how goofy we get? Christian television doesn't understand how to even spell hermeneutics, much less how to operate in it. <laughs> All right, our third type, and these are in no particular order, is theological analysis. So what theological? All right, I thought we were talking about that, Pastor. Theology. I thought this is theology. No, theological analysis talks about the overall study of the Bible, and this one you guys fully understand because I harp on this one a lot. To completely understand a biblical subject and thereby build doctrine, you must evaluate all of the verses pertaining to that subject. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. Well, the Bible itself gives us a secret to hermeneutics. You have to establish every doctrine by two or or at least three voices in the scriptures. Now, this is in, in context, going back to our previous, in this contextual analysis, it talks about accusations or law uh, matters and, and bringing accusations to stone someone, to kill someone, or to return a horse or a donkey. But this, this is what I call the law of witnesses. I don't know if anybody else calls it, but I call it the law of witnesses because you have to have two or three witnesses. This verse is quoted again in Numbers 35, 30, Matthew 18, 16, John 8, 17, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Timothy 5, 19, and Hebrews 10, 28. What is so awesome about this law of witnesses is that the Old Testament quotes it twice, the Gospels quote it twice, and the New Testament quotes it three times. So you have it fulfilling its own self by two witnesses in the Old Testament, two witnesses in the Gospel, and three witnesses in the New Testament, thereby three groupings of two, two, and three, which is awesome because God doesn't break his own laws. These verses teach us that we can't base doctrine on only one verse. We must have the witness of at least two or three to establish any word or doctrine. We are to build doctrinal premises based upon text. Too often, however, especially when folks are ignorant and they want to stay the same, Many doctrines can be described as a premise in search of a text. For example, right now they, they're calling it creation stewardship. All right, so this is a, creation stewardship is a popular doctrine right now. 
and it is a desperate premise in search of text. Creation stewardship is basically environmentalism in the church. Now, that didn't originate out of the Bible. That originated out of popular, modern, post-hippie culture. And because that's trendy in some communities, some pastors have been bitten by that bug, or we would say spirit. And now because they've, they've come to believe it without the biblical influence, it is now their faith. They must now confirm the faith they got from the world by searching for text. That's the reverse of the Bible. The Bible gives us doctrine, our scriptures, we build doctrine from scriptures. The Bible is our source of faith, not culture, not mommy and daddy's raising us some weird way, not the university. The scriptures are the basis of our faith. And so this is very big out west, as you can imagine. You wonder why, because Southerners care nothing about environmentalism. Just drive up and down the street to Cookville. You can see one of them believe in trash pickup. You just blow, you just, you know, I, I think the lower your IQ is in Cookville, the more trash you throw out your, your window because it's so hard to drive it home and put it in a receptacle. I'm not an environmentalist. I am a conservationist because I say conserve stuff. Conserve water, pick your trash up. I don't want your cigarette butts in my church parking lot, whatever. So out west, and earth uh, creation stewardship's big because out west is very much tree hugging, bunny loving, you know, and recycle this and environment that. So they bring that into the church. We have to back it up. So now we start pouring through the scriptures, trying to make them say something God didn't mean for them to say. That is a premise in search of a, con of a, of a text. We take the text and build a premise because God was here before we were. And God's truth was here before in the Industrial Revolution, the Hippie Revolution, and the Environmental Revolution. All right. So examples, communion. We build communion out of seven New Testament passages totaling, totaling 35 verses. Numerous Old Testament, uh, and numerous Old Testament allusions uh, to allude to something, to kind of insinuate. Water baptism, for example, we, build, we have a doctrine of water baptism. There are seven New Testament passages totaling 16 verses. Not a single Old Testament example of baptism. It doesn't exist in the Old Testament. It's strictly a New Testament thing initiated by John the Baptist. Tongues. Tongues has one Old Testament passage with two verses and 14 New Testament passages totaling 108 verses. So we build doctrine from that. Now, unfortunately, you have some churches and some denominations, they have a premise that says there's no tongues anymore. So then they start searching for one singular text in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that says this trumps, this one verse trumps 110 verses that... <laughs> anyway, one verse trumps 110. That's bad. That's bad doctrine. That's bad theology. But that's a premise hell-bent to search for a, a text. Every biblical doctrine, and this is one of my favorite mantras. This is one of my things. If you catch, well, you should catch a lot of stuff from this church. Here's something that will help you as a Bible student. And I use this, my giant diamond, my giant 110 karat glass diamond. God has taught me so much about his nature through that giant prop. Every biblical doctrine is a beautiful, multifaceted gem. Each facet or scripture of that gem, the gem is a doctrine, is critical to defining the gem and producing the radiance that reflects God's glory. Every doctrine is built by scriptures. Every gem is built by facets. And so this, this analysis technique basically says we have to look at all the scriptures to get a, a better feel for what this gem of a doctrine is. And if you've got 15 verses 
that you don't like about your doctrine, you've still got to shoehorn them into your doctrine some way or another and account for them. Amen. Okay. Historical and cultural analysis. Let me, let me add as a side note, charismatics, which is kind of what we are, we sometimes are, have been guilty of uh, promoting or exalting feelings and experiences over the word. That is, that is unbiblical, it's anti-hermeneutical, it's anti-theological, it's anti-Bible. Thank God for feelings and experiences, but we must judge them in light of the word. You can have some weird experiences and it be demonic. You can have some weird experiences and it be God. But we always bring everything back to the Bible. And so too many Christians, they like to, especially in our circles, they like to say, the Holy Spirit said... Well, the Holy Spirit's not going to violate 15 gem doctrines <laughs> because the same Holy Spirit that led you also led the, uh, the holy men of old to write these scriptures. So the Holy Spirit's not schizophrenic like some Christians are. He means what he says. He says what he means, and he's not going to be divided. Amen. And funny, though, is when somebody gets that Holy Spirit said, you can't show them enough scripture. They won't believe it. You, you don't understand, friend. You don't understand, dad. You don't understand, mom. You don't understand, pastor. The Holy Spirit said, and I just got to obey God. Since when? Since when have you wanted to just obey God? Since right now, when it's convenient, may not be the Holy Spirit, may be a familiar spirit. You got half the term, right? Spirit. <laughs> Amen. Historical and cultural analysis. I got to move quickly here. Often, this is an analysis. We look at the history and the culture of the context. Often the historical of col or cultural setting must be understood and accounted for to fully understand what the Bible is trying to communicate. All right, so I think that makes sense. We need to understand the culture. We need to understand the history to fully understand what is being said. If understood, excuse me, if misunderstood, cultures, customs, and social settings can inver invariably produce erroneous doctrines. So I give you some examples to help us further wrap our mind around that. Example, understanding the first century Corinthian culture of the Corinthian church and the temple prostitutes and the, the oracle at Delphi and, and all the pagan worship and the temple prostitutes. If you understand this, it will help to interpret Paul's insistence in the letter to the Corinthians that women pray with their head covered. He was very insistent upon that in the Corinthian letter but not the Galatian letter, not the Ephesian letter, not the Roman letter, only the Corinthian letter. In fact, he does go on to say, and all the churches that insist upon head coverings, and if you want to do that, hey, you know, here in the South, we insist you take your ball cap off because Corinthians says a man praying with his head covered dishonors his head. You know, you know we're pretty lax anymore. I was just raised, it was just manners. You take your hat off when you go inside, you know. We just kind of forget that stuff sometimes. But if it, all those people that insist on head coverings uh, for women, and I've been in churches like that and been overseas and seen it done, and, and I don't have a problem with it, they miss out on the verse where Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 9 that if any man seemed to be contentious about previous 18 verses, we have no such custom. Also, this is a custom thing that Paul's addressing in Corinth he says, we have no such custom, neither do the churches of God. So he excuses 
anybody who seems to be contentious over this thing. But the cultural setting tells us temple prostitutes, which were a dime a dozen, were getting born again and coming into the Corinthian church and they had shaved heads because that's what they did as temple customary worship. So they're coming in and it's freaking people out because that's a temple prostitute. Well, she was up until last week. Her hair just hasn't grown out yet. So you cover your head so you don't cause distractions. And even the, the New Testament, Paul says, does not a woman's hair glorify her? Does not nature say this? So then does that mean you ladies with short hairs are dishonoring God? Not at all. Now, some of you look pretty with short hair. Some of you should never have short hair. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> All right, so there's an example. Another example, understanding the social status of a publican or Roman soldier can help reveal the heart behind what Jesus said to them. Jesus said to Roman soldiers, be thankful for your wages and extort no one, right? Uh, the, Ro the Lord told the Roman centurion and the Ro Roman soldiers many things because they were converting to him because he, he wasn't just winning the Jews. The Gentiles were showing up at his meetings and he was telling them, this is what you have wrong in your life. You're taking advantage of your authority. You're extorting people. You're being ruthless. Then he'd turn around to the Jews and say, and if they ask you to walk a mile, walk two miles with them because it was a common customary practice as a Roman occupying soldier. You could say, my shield's heavy. Hey, Jew, carry this with me as I go to the next town. So he's telling, in one meeting, he's telling this soldier, don't complain about your wages. And you, if he asks you to walk with him a mile, go too. And you, if he wants your coat, give him your tunic also. He's addressing everybody where they had bitterness of heart. Because he's trying to pacify these people and get them ready for the kingdom. All right, just some examples. Understanding the Levitical code can help reveal the significance of why David was able to walk into the Holy of Holies and just eat the showbread off the table while understanding the regional culture of Canaan can help one to appreciate the Levitical call for no shaved heads, I'd be in trouble because I keep my head shaved. The Levitical call for growing out one's hair at the sides. You see the ultra-Orthodox Jews with the big curly cues? That's fulfilling a Levitical code. What is that all about? And not clipping the corner of your beards. Now, if you understand the Canaan demon worship, these three criteria to be a holy priest is the other side of that coin. The demon priests of Canaan shaved their head. The demon priests shaved their sideburns up really high. And they did weird things with their beard. And the Lord said, if you're going to live there, you're not going to look anything like them. So that's what it was all about. It's not a legalistic thing. It's a we want to not look anything like those going to hell. All right, literary analysis. Hopefully you understand that. I think these are pretty common sense once you break them down. Literary analysis. The scriptures, this is our fifth and final analysis tool in hermeneutics, major analytical tool in the interpretation of the scriptures. The scriptures are written in several different literary styles. It's often lost on us in English translation. But these styles must be kept in mind when seeking to interpret the text these styles include histories or historical accounts. So like you, you've got the Joshua, Judges, Ruth, you've got the Kings, you've got Samuel, you've got Chronicles. Those are all historical documentaries. All right? That's a history. It's, it's just like a history text. You've got prophecies. Daniel is a, a lot of prophecy. The major prophets and, the, and minor prophets, that's a lot of prophecy. You've got the Revelation, all prophecy. That's an allegorical, excuse me, a literary type. You have narratives. The book of Acts is a narrative. We did this, and then Paul did that, and then they joined to us. So the book of Acts is a narrative. 
Uh, then you've got poetry. Psalms is poetry. Song of Solomon is poetry. You have an acrostic, which we covered a couple weeks ago. Uh, and then you've got psalms, which are basically lyrics. Some of psalms are just lyrics. Those are hymns. The, you, the whole book of psalms, all 149, 150 of them, they are all lyrics to songs. It's like the Jewish songbook. And then you have letters, the epistles. And the gospels, of course, are narratives. Furthermore, these literary styles themselves incorporate allegory. So in all these different styles, you incorporate other literary styles like allegory or parables. You incorporate metaphors. And metaphors like under his wings thou shalt trust. You use something that is nothing like it to kind of paint the picture. That's a metaphor. Obviously, God doesn't have wings. But when you say under his wings we trust, you have the instant picture in your mind of if I can just get to God, he'll cover me like a mother hen and protect me. God's not a mother though, nor is he an eagle nor does he have feathers, but it's a metaphor. So you can't take that scripture and build a doctrine, God has wings, literal wings. No, it's a metaphor. And if we understand it's a metaphor, we don't get weird. And we don't start looking for feathers to fall in a church service like what was really big in the 80s, which was either familiar spirits or just a magician's gimmick. Turned out a little bit of both. They took one of those feathers and they turned out it was goose down. And uh, Brother Sumrall got word of it because it had duped a lot of folks in one major city. And Brother Sumrall said, don't tell me those stupid people in that city are falling for goose feathers. <laughs> and yet he was accurate. They had stupidly fallen for goose feathers because they didn't have hermeneutics. They were too busy getting caught up in the experience. <gasps> a goose feather. Because, you know, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove like a dove. That's a metaphor. Like, a, like, not was a dove. Like, like. I think we understand what like means, like similar to. How did he come down? Soft. Not like, not like a locomotive. Not like an anvil on Wiley Coyote. Like a dove. That's more like a pigeon. Sorry, Holy Spirit. <laughs> I don't know what noise a dove makes except boom when you're dove hunting. <laughs> That's more like a crow. I don't have good bird noises. Forgive me. <laughs> then you have similes. You metaphor simile. Similes, you, you juxtapose two things that are nothing alike. Song of Solomon, he tells his bride, your neck is like an ivory tower. Hopefully that's a compliment. I mean, you got like an E.T. neck? Or now he's talking about how fair her skin is, how smooth it is. An ivory tower is smooth and beautiful. He didn't say, your neck is like a leatherback turtle. Lumpy, bumpy, and rawhide-ish. Uh, no, nobody wants to kiss on that kind of neck. No, so that's a simile. So, you know, <laughs> we, you're not going to try to build doctrine. The only doctrine you can extrapolate from that is that it's appropriate to write your wife love letters and tell her how beautiful you are in your local vernacular. You know, Song of Solomon also says, you are like the goats in the high places. You tell an American woman she's like a goat in the high places, you're going to come to the church with two black eyes and a bloody nose. I was quoting scripture to her. I thought we had doctrine. You need some hermeneutics, dude. <laughs> All right, figurative language, the young lions and the adders. That's figurative. Young lions and adders refers to those with venomous mouths that devour uh, naive or innocent people. Uh, Psalm 91 says, they shall trample upon the young lion and the adder. You're not gonna go ride lions and chase snakes. It's figurative. And literal language, in my name, they shall cast out devils. That is literal. That is not allegory. 
So this, if you understand these literal techniques and these, excuse me, these literary techniques, it'll keep you from getting weird and goofy with your doctrine. This is all simple hermeneutics. And so for a further, if you want to study deeper, uh, uh, Henry Verkler has a, a very famous book on hermeneutics, principles and process of biblical interpretation. Let me cover, let me wrap up with this. This is critical. This last page is called trajectory hermeneutics. And I have a big warning here because trajectory hermeneutics, just, just like many of us, many of you are Bible students and you probably realize you've already been doing these five major hermeneutical techniques. You've already been asking yourself, what's the context here? Uh, what's the historical context? Who's he talking to here? Uh, is that an allegory, a metaphor, a simile? Even if you don't know what those words mean, you're asking yourself those questions. Just like we probably operate by the Holy Spirit under what is called biblical hermeneutics, the world and, and godless theologians and liberal Christians are operating probably unbeknownst to them what is, under what is called trajectory hermeneutics. And it is a real thing. It is also known as redemptive movement hermeneutics. So let me read this to you. Trajectory hermeneutics is an exegetical approach that seeks to interpret the Bible voice as a progressive trajectory that in the end requires the scriptures to be interpreted in light of modern culture. In essence, this approach endeavors to calculate the trajectory that is the direction and velocity the Bible narrative and doctrines were headed in their high eyes, evolving when the cannon was closed and then extrapolates its landing site and presumed target. So they say, we know the Bible ended in the revelation, but, and we know the Bible doesn't uh, discuss the slave trade. The Bible doesn't discuss mer medical marijuana, but we can kind of see where God was headed. And so we have these three points. We can extrapolate the trajectory of this doctrine or this line. And so uh, the, the only foundation for this that is somewhat biblical is slavery. The New Testament does not all out say slavery is wicked and abominable. And you go to Leviticus, it gives you laws on how you can beat your slave. But Paul does say, servants, slaves, obey your masters in all things, serve them. And he also does say, masters though, Treat your slaves with all respect, your servants with all respect, giving unto them what they have need of, etc. But somebody had made the argumentative point, if slaves in America and slave masters in America had obeyed Paul, it wouldn't have been called slavery in the first place. It would have been called indentured servitude, which is still legal. It's called a nine to five job. <laughs> it's called working on a cruise ship. My brother did that. He was a slave to carnival for three or four years because you signed a contract and you can't get out. That's the only thing, and that's the, all the examples. See, trajectory, the Bible doesn't outright forbid it, but we understand the Bible was the basis for the abolition of slavery in America and other places. All right, but now you take that logic and you try to apply it to what I call modern sin fads. So the, the trajectory, where was the Bible headed where God said the end? Well, he wasn't headed anywhere. He is the all-inclusive one. He's, he just is. The current end result in, is the approval of modern sin fads. Like the Presbyterian church just voted to redefine marriage because of trajectory hermeneutics. God is love and love loves everybody. And if two people love each other, who are we? You're nobody. God is somebody though. Quickly, in its interpretive method, trajectory hermeneutics, in its method, it is the opposite of the historical interpretive device known as modernism, as in history, world history. 
but it produces the same result. Modernism erroneously endeavors to interpret historical events and historical people through the filter and understanding of the current cultural climate. You know, Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. He was trying to get rid of them, but his Virginia wouldn't let him. See, he's a dirtbag. What a worthless founding father. Oh, that's modernism. You're trying to interpret the society they lived in by today's standards. Modernism assumes, here's the two stupid things they do. Modernism assumes man's heart stays the same. Trajectory hermeneutics assumes God's heart changes. In the end, both work to promote and justify modern perversion. They are both promoted by the spirit of the world. Trajectory hermeneutics or redemptive movement hermeneutics, as it is sometimes called, is the predominant framework used by those who would argue that we should not obey all New Testament instructions since God's ultimate ethic is beyond what the text is actually saying. In essence, we should wait to see where this thing shall land. So I conclude by saying stick with the Bible and study it so you can know God. Amen. Father, bless us. Bless these lessons. May we walk with you and know you like never before. In Jesus' name, amen.